All right, well, we gotta, I'm gonna cover Isaiah 65 to 66 a little bit this morning and tie the bow on this conversation of the new heavens and the new earth. And then I promise we'll move on to answering more of those, those questions. So as we go through Isaiah 65 to 66, which is verses 17, then through 66, verse 24, I think we should be, I think most would agree with this, that it's not as clear as Revelation chapter 20, verse 7 through 22, verse 5, which should always give us pause when we're trying to interpret passages together. We should always lean on the clear to then interpret the, the unclear. I'm not saying that Isaiah is unclear completely, but I think the Revelation passage is clearer in the, in the order of the events. But having said that, let's say that this passage is figurative, which a lot would. would look at Isaiah 65 to 66 as figurative. Now, if it is, so metaphorical, let's say it's some hyperbolic language, etc., well then, a first century fulfillment works. Okay, if it's figurative, then first century fulfillment works. But what would also work, possibly, is a future fulfillment. fulfillment. Either one follows. So if we're going to agree that Isaiah 65 to 66 is largely figurative, which a lot would to make it fit uh, the first century, well, I think I, think I can use that that hermeneutic, then that princi hermeneutical principle, then to make it fit with future fulfillment. So I'm not sure that des that decides the matter for us, if if we go go that route. So either well, I think either one works, but then we're still left with Second Peter three and Revelation twenty to twenty two, which I would say that the future fulfillment has a stronger case, a much stronger case for those passages, than would a first century. Does that make sense? So if we, if we want to battle on Isaiah 65 to 66, I think either one is plausible with it. <clears throat> but that's not all we have. We have other verses, other passages that I think work better with the future fulfillment interpretation. Now notice, I'm willing to concede that the, the new heavens and the new earth starts at the end of the millennium. I've, having gone through that, I'm willing to concede that. I wouldn't qu quibble about that. Uh, so. It's progressing, it's starting at the end of the millennium, and then there's the development as Christ comes back, throws Satan, uh, throws him down, and we have the, the, new, the judgment, great white, great white throne judgment, and, and the rest as we talked about last time. But notice though, I'm only making this concession based on one verse. If you go through Isaiah 65 to 66, which I went through multiple times in the last two weeks, like really the only verse that gives me pause and not having to be the um, after the second coming, having to be prior to that, is this one verse, Isaiah 65, 20. There shall be no more thence an infant of days, nor an old man that hath not filled his days. For the child shall die a hundred years old, but the sinner, being a hundred years old, shall be accursed. And you go through different translations in this and slightly different ways to translate it. You get, like look at Calvin and how he interpreted this. Like this, it's not clear from what I could tell, what this means. I'm willing to concede that it's very plausible that the world's getting better over time. At the end of the millennium, the length of life, the lifespan greatly, you know, we go back to the days of Noah, 
kind of, kind of lifespans. I'm willing to concede that, and that makes sense to me, and I'm willing to accept that. But I wouldn't hang my hat on it. Like, I'm not positive that this, this verse means that. So, if this is the only verse that gives me pause <laughs> to make this concession, I just, I'm not, I'm going to pencil it in. Okay, we're not, I'm not going to write it in ink yet. But notice, though, that this use of already not yet is the same that we use for the kingdom and for the binding of Satan. So the binding of Satan and the kingdom, that use of already not yet, the way we're using it here is the same kind of use. It's not this foreshadowing that, that we talked about last time. Right? There are all these different uses that people have for already not yet. This would be consistent with what we said before. Now, this, this term already not yet, which I, heard, I think someone told me last time that Voss made it very popular in biblical theology in the early 20th century. I'm not sure the, the origin of it, but I don't really like the term. It's not, it's not awful, like we can do, make do with it, but it seems to be a term that was, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but to tickle the ears, to have this like, when I hear that, I think here but not here. Like if I were just to go talk to someone randomly on the street and said, already not yet, I think in their mind what they would get is here but not here, which doesn't really tell me much. If I came up to you and said, it's here but not here, I think you'd have more questions than you, ha you'd have more questions unanswered created by that phrase than questions that were answered because you gave me the phrase. I'm not sure it's helpful. So what I propose that we use instead, if you still want to use it, it's fine. We're just going to have a lot of what do you mean by this, okay? which is fine, we, we can do that. What I propose is we just say here but developing. I know it doesn't roll off the tongue, I know it's not sexy, I know it doesn't, you know, it doesn't get you all excited to like dream in, in images, but I think it's clear. It's here but developing. And if we use it that way, I think a lot of this stuff gets, gets cleared up. I think you're less prone to use this on things that clearly are not here. Now let's go back to a couple of verses with this. Notice in Romans 8.22, this famous verse by Paul, and he says, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. This is post-resurrection. This is post-ascension. The creation is not on the mend. Right? If the new heavens and new earth was already there with Paul, and this curse is being you know, rolled back, and, and the creation is being redeemed over time, you think Paul would be saying something more of, it's on the mend. It's coming back, right? It's sick, but it's, it's being healed. But, the, but the, the picture we have in the Bible is after the fall, the creation is suffering, and it is fallen. It is groaning and travailing in pain. And that continues all the way until Christ comes back. That's the picture that, 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 we, that we get, which is, again, I can make sense of this if the new heavens and new earth is, literally, is actually in the future, is actually coming in the future, it's not already here. Also remember in 2 Peter 3.12, there's this looking, right? We're looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. So even in Peter's time, this is pre-AD 70, he's looking for this new heavens and the new earth. Well, is that then just a couple of decades later? 
Like, it just doesn't seem to fit very well. Like, have you read Fox's Book of Martyrs and looked at, like, the persecution of the church post the fall of Jerusalem? Like, it's pretty bad. Now, God used that providentially to grow the church exponentially, okay? And praise God for that. But I doubt Christians during this time are thinking of, the, I, mean, I, I doubt they're thinking of the new heavens and new earth as pictured in the Bible as it's here, right? I think this promise makes more sense to me that this promise while we're getting persecuted, while we're, these things are happening, it's literally to this time where God is going to tabernacle among us in a way complete, like incomparable to what we have now. There is no death. There is no suffering. We are released from the effects of sin wherever it can be found. That is what we're looking for. That's what we're looking to. That's our hope in the future. And if you just kind of read through the Bible, I think it's fairly obvious that's where things are going. That's the general picture that we get. I think what trips people up on this is there are aspects of the new heavens and the new earth that have already started. And so because there are aspects of it, then they just assume that the whole thing has started. I don't think that follows. So let's go through a, a couple of questions quickly. Do we commune with God now? Yes. Amen. Does Jesus intercede for us with the Father? Yes, praise God, wonderful. Are we the bride of Christ now? Yes, yes we are. All right, so then from there, is our communing here but developing? Yes, our communing with God is here, right? It's here, but it's developing. It will change and it'll be different when Jesus comes back. So it's developing. Is Jesus' intercession here but developing? Will his intercession for us with the Father be different in the new heavens and the new earth? I would say yes, I think, I think it will be. It'll be even better, however that's, that's going to look, which I can't fathom that, but you know, I think it will be. It'll continue to, to develop. All right. Is the bride of Christ here but developing? Yes. So all these things I agree with. It does not follow, though, that the new heavens and the new earth are therefore here, but developing. Now, that's a possibility, right? So are the new heavens and new earth here, but developing? I think there's two possibilities here. You have a yes. Someone could say, yes, it is. If you do that, though, I think you have all these problems that we talked about the other time. There are all these things that come into play, like we just talked about with Romans 8.22 and 2 Peter 3 and the whole, the general flow of Revelation 20 through 22, and all sorts of other passages. So you introduce all these problems if you want to say it's already here. But I don't have to be committed to that. I can uphold all of these questions, us sharing the same answer, and say, no, the new heavens and new earth is a unique time in history that is coming in the future. And all these things that we have now, where we are tabernacling with God, we are communing with God, are going to be incomparably better at that time. So when Revelation talks about these things where weeping is gone and the curse is gone and we're lifted from all of this, the effects of sin, this tabernacling with God is qualitatively different and almost incomparably better than what we have now. And that is our future, our future hope. Both of these are acceptable. And I would argue that the latter has far fewer problems to, to deal with. We can still say that God is in the process of recreating the heavens and the earth now? So, 
here's what I would say on that. I think, I think we, God has given us the ability, both the wisdom and the resources, to limit, to greater limit the effects of sin on us. Okay, but, but, it, but it's not going away. We're not like getting into the earth and walking back the curse. I think we can greatly resist the effects on us through obedience to him. And, and then from that comes technolog te technological innovation and so forth that would. So can we eliminate cancer? Probably. I don't, that seems plausible that we could do that. Maybe it's 100,000 years from now, but it could be gone. Could we greatly limit the effects of the sun breaking down our bodies and our skin? Yeah, I could see, I could see us doing that. But the creation is still cursed. Okay. Creation is still cursed. The effects of sin are still here. The universe is still running down. Like everything is still going in that direction. So I, I wouldn't say we're walking back the curse. I would say that we are growing in blessing of limiting the effects of the curse and the, and the effects of sin on us. Does that make sense? All right. That's it. Just wanted to tie a bow on that and we'll continue on to uh, the kingdom. If you have questions about the, uh, Yes, Tyler. My, my issue with changing it from here but developer, from already not yet to here but developing, is it takes away the timelessness of God. So God's not bound by time. Mm -hmm. So that puts it in time. Like it's something that is happening, but God is outside of time. And so we can say that this has already happened for God, but like we haven't experienced yet. So I think you're just shifting the perspective of the same from the eternal to our perspective. But already not yet is temporal. I mean, that, that is our phrase for our, from our vantage point. Yeah. I would say they're both temporal. But in fact, I would, be, I would go on to say that I don't even know what it means. I, don't, I can't admit, have you seen Interstellar? Yeah. Okay, so you know when, he, have you guys seen Interstellar? Okay, you know when he enters into that next dimension, he's outside of time? And he's going in the bookshelves, and he's like trying to find that. It's it's a it's a beautiful scene in the sense that um, the attempt that Nolan's trying to make here, and how he's trying to get through to his daughter. Like it's 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 a good scene, but it's not accurate. Tars, who's in that dimension with him, is communicating with him temporally. Like it does not work. That is not it. That is not an atemporal like realm. That is not accurate at all for what it is to be outside of time. We cannot, we cannot conceive of what it means to be outside of time. We can talk about it in ways that are like semi-helpful, but they're still limited temporally. And we can get into that. In the... so, so I think already not yet is temporal. Like that's the whole point is that it's already now, but there's points that haven't happened yet in history, right? So it's already not yet. For God, everything is at once, which again, is still temporal. As we we only we can only communicate that temporally, so it's still not good. But um, just kind of picking up on that. Well, the, I I agree with your layout of the new heavens, new earth, transitioning in end of the millennium when the millennium begins. When does it begin? And then the growth of the kingdom. So where kingdom growth must happen. Mm -hmm. I would argue that the, the strong man has to be bound in order for the kingdom to grow. Yeah. They go hand in hand. Yeah. My, my, issue, my, so my issue is is that, again, just an observation. Sure. It's possible to be historic pre, a millennial, and still be optimistic. 
right? Given given these transitions. Historic pre, what is what is that? It's historic pre is, is almost similar to um, amillennialism, where the idea of what you're saying that everything that the world is still under a curse, it will finally be dealt with, but we're still mm -hmm. under the curse. There is no transform transforming happening. Mm -hmm. It will happen if it wants, or at least near to once in the end. Mm -hmm. um, the, what I'm struggling with is I, I, I'm, I'm struggling to tell the difference at this point between post-millennialism as you're presenting it and amillennialism, which can hold both views that the millennium is both spiritual, Christ reigning, and real at the same time. So think of like Sam Storm's views of the amillennium. So do you understand what I'm, what I'm trying to get at? There's this there, there is an overlap between the now and not yet in terms of time. The question is, is that if you hold to a definitive millennium star, how is that different from, functionally different, from, say, historic pre or amillennialism? Yeah, so let me just shoot back to the beginning here. So we have this contrast between premillennialism and postmillennialism. I have, I have tried semi-hard to find a definition of amillennialism. I don't know what it is. So I don't know how to answer if this is a amillennial position or postmillennial because I really don't know what it is. Whenever I talk to someone about amillennialism, they grab something from pre, something from post, and then it's like this mixed bag of stuff. Yes, the reason they do that is because they understand the millennium is both spiritual and real. Coexistent. See, but I don't even know what that means. Like, uh, well, of course it's spiritual. Think of Psalm 110, that Christ is already at the right hand of the Father. Yeah. Ascended. And then over time, the enemies are being brought under his authority. Well, yeah, and, and postmillennialism and amillennialism, if that's what amillennialism believes, would be the same there. Well, this, this, well, this is why I'm struggling to tell the difference. See, I, I, but I think that. I think amillennialism is a confused postmillennialism. If you actually worked it through, I'm serious. Like I don't mean that to be insulting. I just, yo. Related to that, um, that comment that you said that you think that amillennialism is a confused postmillennialism, I was going to ask what you thought, if you're familiar with Bonson's position on amillennialism, that um, that an optimistic amillennialist is actually. That's my point, yes. That, that's exactly my point. So I think if you press most amillennialists who are holding that Christ is currently at the right hand of the Father, bringing all of his enemies under his foot, they would be optimistic. I think most would say that. Yeah. If they're not, here's what functionally is happening. So if, if they are consistent with that, then they're a confused postmillennialist, which I would agree with Bonson's point there. If they say, no, I hold that spiritually, <laughs> Again, whatever that means. Like, I don't even know what that means still. If it doesn't, if it doesn't manifest itself physically, I don't get this distinction between the spirit. Like, if it, only, it can only be spiritual, not physical. We'd have to dig into those, those details. But if someone said, that's happening spiritually, but the world is actually going like this. Well, I think, I think the, the tipping point is, what do you do with man of lawlessness? That's that, because whichever view you hold mm -hmm. from historic free, you've got a problem. Where, where, where is he? 
but if we, but I think we can remove him from the equation. I don't think we have to deal with him. So I think if we look at the contrast between pre and post, it's a pretty clear contrast. What I get from amillennials is either an optimistic amillennialism, which I think is just a confused postmillennialism. So, that, so that's not a distinct position then. Or we get a pessimistic amillennial, or, or he's pessimistic based on the day, he, how he's feeling, okay? So he thinks it's this some days, he thinks, but it's really just, you know, uh, I think actually if you, if you pressed him on it, it would be some variation of premillennialism. Like if you actually, this is, this is why I compared it to the Lutheran view on the sacraments. Um, if you press them on their language, they want to take, it's not really, it's not, a vi it's not actually a viable position because it's contradictory. They take Catholic language for some things and they take Protestant language for others and they want to hold both of these things but they don't work. So, so is, it a, is it an actual position? I would argue no. You have a Catholic version of the sacraments, you have a Protestant version, and then you have a contradictory version in the middle that tries to do both. It's like someone who said, I'm a Vantillian and I'm an evidentialist. I'd say, I'm sorry, sir, like you, that is not a position. You can call it something, but it's just contradictory. Now, I could be wrong on this, because I'm not an expert in amillennialism, but I can just... No, I don't think you're wrong, I'm just trying to... So, at what, like my point is, at what point the question applies to both, does the millennium start? Yeah, so I think the millennium starts after AD 70. And I think the binding of Satan is fulfilled at that point, or closely thereafter. So the binding started when Jesus was in the wilderness or when he's casting out demons. At some point there, for sure, it's, I think it started when he's casting out demons. And that's for sure when the kingdom started. Okay, so I think the kingdom comes at the same time the binding starts. And then Satan is, it's bound, but developing. And the binding is fulfilled at the end of uh, AD 70, or closely thereafter. So now the binding is completed, the millennium then starts, which again is consistent with Revelation 20. Satan's bound and the millennium starts. So that's how I would look at it. And then the millennium starts and we're still in the millennium. And, and the creation is gonna get better over time in the sense that it's not gonna fight us as much to get the resources out of it, right? Because we're gonna be limiting the effects of this. It's still cursed, right? It still needs to be redeemed. But we are gonna enter into a prosperity where the world will kiss the sun and that will happen, which is what these five questions establish. See, but that, that is, that is post-millennialism. Oh, no. Yeah, so I'm agreeing with all of that. All I'm doing in this is I'm saying, I think our view on the new heavens and new earth is wrong. The historical, like, post-millennial presentation, I think is fraught with problems. And so I can hold everything they're holding. I can be, a, I can be, God forbid I would disagree with Greg Bonson, but I can, I can be a post-millennialist you know, with Greg Bonson and tell him, I think you need to I need to clean up your new heavens and new earth section. Oh no, I think, I think you've done, I think you've done a great job in explaining that. I was just wrestling with, there is no functional difference between those three views when it comes to being optimistic because- I think it's confused post-millennialism. Yeah, but even Matthew 13 with the, uh, the weeds and the tares growing side by side. Yeah. Which is sort of pre yeah, and I would hold to that. Because when Satan, when Satan uh, is released at the end of the millennium, there are weeds to recruit, right, in this battle. But I, I, would, I would picture it more of uh, America in 1780, 
Were atheists around in America in 1780? Sure. Were agnostics around? Sure. Were heretics around? Sure. But they were in the Christian stream of life. They were in the Christian rhythms of life, right? So, um, and to do that, though, you have to have a people that's largely Christian and a people that are agreeing to Christian laws and so forth. Does that make sense? So if the whole world is like 1780 America, but you know, with technology and all this other advancements, if the whole world is like that, that's a post-millennial vision of the world. But sure, you could get a bunch of rebellion even, even in that world. So I was reading Calvin on this passage. Let me just, I, I thought this was humorous. I love Calvin. And Calvin's obviously, as Van Til would say, he, he is the theologian uh, of the church. But if you could go to Isaiah 65, verse 17, for lo, I will create new heavens and new earth. Here's what Calvin says about this. He goes, by these metaphors, he promises a remarkable change of affairs, as if God had said that he has both the inclination and the power not only to restore his church, but to restore it in such a manner that it shall appear to gain new life and to dwell in a new world. These are exaggerated modes of expression. All right, so, so when he gets to new... I'm like, all right, let's see if Calvin then is consistent with this as, as he goes through. Well, you go to just the next page as he's breaking down this verse. The former things shall not be remembered. And then he says, let us remember that these things, that take, uh, these, that these things take place in us so far as we are renewed. But we are only in part renewed, and therefore we do not yet see a new heaven and new earth. It is not here, right? So, and then he goes on. We need not wonder, therefore, that we continue to mourn and weep, since we have not entirely laid aside the old man, but, but many remains are still left. It is with us also that the renovation ought to begin. It's beginning with us. Because we hold the first rank, and it is through our sin that the creatures groan and are subject to vanity, as Paul shews in Romans uh, verse 20, 8, verse 20. But when we shall be perfectly renewed, heaven and earth shall also be fully renewed. So like in the same time where he's saying this is metaphorical and like figurative, and the next page he's saying, and we look for the actual change of the world in the future. I just found that, that humorous that even Calvin, the great theologian, um, I think has an inconsistency there. Like I don't think if you're just gonna metaphor, basically make it metaphorical and just about man, you know, his world seems to be like a new heavens and new earth, um, then you're gonna have, you shouldn't, I think if you, held back consistently, which is what we're running into now with preterists, full preterists, is you lose the new heavens and the new earth. There's no way to stop it at, the, at that point. Anyway, all right. Are we good? Should we go back to... All right, so will, the, will this kingdom grow? Will the kingdom grow? That's the next question. Yes. Daniel 2, thou sawest, <clears throat> this is uh, verse 34, and we'll continue on. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and brake them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together, and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain, and filled the whole earth." And we're going to hear from Daniel what this means. This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. This is to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. 
Thou, O king, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power and strength and glory. And by the way, premillennialists do not disagree with us basically all the way up into like the very last of the fourth kingdom, which I find interesting. There's really no disagreement amongst the camps. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven hath he given into thine hand and hath made thee ruler over them. Thou art this head of gold. And after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, another, and that Medo-Persian empire was the second kingdom, and then another third kingdom of brass, which is the Greeks, which shall bear rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom, the Roman empire, shall be as strong as iron. For as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things, and as iron that breaketh all these, shall it break in, in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. This is where premillennials go, nope, see, it's like the renewed, right, Rome. It's the new Rome coming. We would say, no, it's, this is where we would divert. But. And part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it of the strength of iron, of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom. Well, what is that? Well, of course, I think most natural reading then is that, well, this is the kingdom Jesus said that he brought, right? To, so this is the same kingdom. Which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. So the stone that hit the mountain is God's kingdom, and that's gonna fill the whole earth. So is it growing? Yes, the image is growing. Now, is that all we have in the Bible for this? No, we have a, a lot more. Another parable uh, put he forth unto them, saying the kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed. This is Matthew 13, which, is a, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds. But when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs, and becometh a tree, so that the birds of, of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. Is there growth in the kingdom? Yes. So I find that this is probably one of my favorite parables because as a premillennialist, uh, how they would try to, to, <laughs> to solve this is they would say, well, you see, the birds are wicked because the birds went and they would snatch the seed by the wayside in the other parable, right? When you cast some seed went by the wayside, some got... You know, it was rough ground, some was fertile, and, but the birds came and plucked the seeds out. So the birds are wicked, so this is actually a wicked kingdom. And then, and then you buy that at the time and you move on. But like looking back at this, I'm like, come on, guys, like this is pretty bad. It's not like the parable was this evil egg. The kingdom is like an egg, and out of it hatches this awful bird, this grotesque beast that comes out of the ether. You know, it's like, that's not, that's not the image that, right, this is. So even, I don't have to accept that just because birds are bad in one parable, they're bad in all. I, that's a stretch. But even if I accept that, it still works for us, right? The kingdom is a tree that presents blessings to, to creation, including even the degenerate birds. Like, that's a much better understanding that the, uh, no, than that the creation is wicked. All right, let's continue on. Another parable spake he unto them, the kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. Again, it starts, it grows. It starts, it grows. This is pretty consistent. And then we get into even prophecies about Jesus coming 
his birth and his reign. All of this is growth all the way through. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called the Wonderful Counselor, or Wonderful Counselor, and other translations, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will, will perform this. Now, premillennialists will say, well, yeah, he's going to do that in the future. It's all going to happen at once. He's going to come and he's going to do that. And that's why I left these toward the end of this. Like, I understand that position. That does not work for the parables and it doesn't work for Daniel 2. And with Jesus talking about the kingdom being here. So that interpretation doesn't work for those other ones. So since we've, since we've disproven that part, now the rest that we're going to proceed now are all just going to reinforce what we already knew. You're going to see how all of this fits together, which I keep harping on this, but I think it's really important that, remember, our principle in, her, in hermeneutics is that if we introduce an interpretation and it creates more confusion, it's probably wrong. Probably. If we, inter we insert an interpretation that makes more sense of the, of the text, of the text of the Bible, things come together, it's a much clearer picture, you're probably right, or at least you're going on the right path. And you'll see all this stuff comes together. So Matthew 6, Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. It's just beautiful. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. We've been praying this for thousands of years. Well, obviously, then, it would make sense that this thing is then happening over, right? Like, it is growing. It is, as more Christians are praying for this, the Father delights in answering our prayers, right? Jesus delights in bringing those prayers to the Father, and the Father delights in, in answering his Son, in this. And so naturally this would be a growth then. Our prayers would, would come to pass and the, his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus came and spake unto them saying, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Again, this makes sense then given what we just worked through that this is actually going to happen. Jesus is on the throne, and he's actually going to accomplish this. We are the body of Christ to bring this about. God's going to use us with all of our imperfections. He's going to bring this about through his grace and his power. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. So notice, though, as this growth happens, this is why I don't get the whole spiritual, like, physical separation, is if you obey what God has commanded you, the world will physically be radically changed. So when someone says in their eschatology, they, yeah, I think the kingdom is here spiritually, it's just not here physically. I don't even, I don't know what that means. I don't think we have the same meaning of spiritual then at that point. I think, I think they use, from my understanding, they use spiritual to deal with the issue of time. So rather than a literal period of time, it is a period of time. You know, okay. That's what I think that's, from my understanding, that typically uh, I, a millennial would, would argue that. And point. it's the pessimistic a millennial that would argue that point. No, no, even, so the post, 
So the idea of optimism and of Matthew 13 can be true almost whichever view you hold. Mm -hmm. right? Because, you, like you say, you've read this for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. um, all the parables suggest that victory comes in the end. So everyone's got a, everyone is optimistic. The question is, how optimistic can we be generation on generation when it comes to what changes? Sure. You know, can we expect a Christian nation, for instance, in America? Is that a realistic expectation, mm -hmm. or is that overreaching? Are we overreaching in our eschatology? Sure. And I think I think as we work through the questions, we would say no, we're not. Right. But the answer is no. We're not. We're not overreaching. In fact, we're probably underreaching. Where we are, if we would only pray, we sh we should have grand prayers, like we should ask a lot of God. We should, we should dream big as Christians. We've been dreaming so small for too long. We need to dream, dream big. So will this kingdom grow? Yes, it will grow. Next time we'll get into how will it grow and then what is the end result of this growth. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for how you work in the body of Christ, how beautiful it is to see your spirit move and to teach us and to commune with us today as we, as we come before your throne. God, I pray that you would help us to unite in Christ, to help each other, and to be there when others are in need. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.